that's maybe a part of this play that is that is uh, always up for question is what is the credibility of these characters and their experience and what they're actually interacting with. Everyone and welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. We're glad to have you in today. Glad to be back to chat about another great script. A kind of a spooky script this time around. It is. Yeah, it's kind of suspenseful, um, like dealing with things ethereal and spiritual realms and things like that, um, but also kind of deliberately suspenseful or maybe even just a little bit like in the horror realm even occasionally on stage it'll be kind of interesting to talk about it in that in that sphere because so often the uh the kind of horrific experience is centered around television or film and kind of a very forced perspective so it's interesting to try to bring that sort of uh suspense to the stage um to to uh, a stage of people with a whole audience there to watch it yeah, no, you're exactly right. A, a horror is not a typical genre that you think about with dramatic work. And, and that doesn't mean, of course, it doesn't exist. Clearly it does, but it's just not in the more common realm of stage genres. And you think about movies or even books, but let's just stay with movies for now because it's more closely aligned. You know, if you were naming genres of movies, you'd get to horror really quick. And I, you, I just don't think you'd get there that quick in stage work. Now, it is interesting, and it's interesting reading this play because, oh boy, when would it have been? It was like a year or two years ago, something like that. I directed a, a piece of horror theater. It was a, a kind of a spooky huh. ghost story play, and it was a fascinating experience for me. I don't, I'm not somebody that like considers myself really enjoying horror movies. I don't watch them by and large. I read quite a bit of horror fiction books, but I just don't, I, I don't know. I don't engage with the embodied horror genre in the, in the sense of film. So when I picked up this script to direct it, it's not the play that we're talking about today. It's a different play in the same category. I was like, boy, I don't know what to do. This is going to be interesting. How, yeah. like the experience of like being scared is one of the core experiences. And so what does that look like when you bring it to the stage? And I think I learned as a director a lot of the lessons that our playwright for today has certainly instilled in his horror script. Yeah, yeah, the the the, the kind of ways to slowly build suspense to make it work uh, when when people can look wherever they want to look. You have to use a lot of darkness and empty space and directioning of attention, um, and all while. Um, I'm excited also to kind of have the conversation about how he does this with these kind of two characters and their relationship with the thin space, too, because it's not just a jump scary, you know, or even really all that graphic of a play um, in terms of like violence or something like that. It's all done with suspense and all done with storytelling and the way these characters interact with their experience of a thin space or the other side. So it's it's an exciting script in that way as well. Yeah, so Jackson has revealed we are today talking about The Thin Place. <laughs> the Thin Place is a That's play right. by Lucas Nath. 
Lucas Nath, of course, <laughs> one of the big wigs of American drama. We have come to him many a time in our podcast journeys, including last season, a conversation with Montana rep artistic director Michael Legg, uh, where we revisited a Lucas Nath play, The Christians. Uh, that is a great conversation in and of itself to hear about the early relationship between Lucas Nath and director Les Waters. Les Waters as director is important to this play as well. Well, so this converse, this play conversation today uh, is sort of in tandem or, or could be a partnership with that revisiting conversation from last season's um, themed month. So feel free to go check that out, uh, uh, the conversation from last season. But for today, our play is The Thin Place by Lucas Nath. Yes, yes, it's always interesting when we get a couple minutes in and I haven't said the title and all of a sudden we're like, <laughs> oh yeah, we're talking about we're talking about that play. Yeah, no, I'm excited uh-huh. to get to talk about it to get, uh, today again. Lucas Nath is one of my fav- favorite playwrights. Excited to kind of jump into the conversation around that and and the way that that he kind of continues to play with the 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 spiritual and the personal and the dramatic and all things theatrical. It's going to be a good a conversation. I'm excited for it. Yeah, the way he uses language, the way he uses economy of movement. I mean, like, well, as we'll talk about this play, I think you could probably call a minimalist horror play. Like, as strange yeah. as that sounds, but it, it, you'll, yeah, you'll yeah, hear yeah, about yeah. it if you have not encountered The Thin Place. Really, really, really fascinating play. Before we get there, though, we just want to ask you if you're listening and you haven't done it yet, I'm asking you personally to think about going to patreon.com slash no script podcast. That's all one word, no hyphens, no underscores, patreon.com slash no script podcast. There you can find, obviously, our Patreon page. Our Patreon page is where people support this podcast financially. We try to keep the cost for that really low. This is a crowdfunded podcast, as it were. Everybody pitches in a little bit so that we're able to do this work because we feel like the work that we do on the podcast is valuable to those who listen to it. And we continue to get emails, social media messages from people who are desperate to have conversations about plays and really excited by what's going on. Our financial support over there is what makes doing this podcast possible. Jackson and I are not like independently wealthy. We did not inherit many, many millions of dollars to be able to fund a project that takes this much time and that takes regular financial investment from us in order to make happen. And so because of the people who've decided to contribute on Patreon, this podcast is able to exist. It's as simple as that. Without them, the podcast couldn't happen, period, end of story. So if you're one of those supporters already, big thank you. Your small financial contribution every month, the lowest tier is a dollar a month, that contribution makes what we do possible, and hopefully what we do then benefits you in return. If you're not a supporter yet, please think about it. Again, costs are really low. The lowest tier is a dollar a month. They go up from there if you're able to afford it, and of course we appreciate that, but that dollar a month tier is hugely helpful, and we have a lot of great supporters at that tier. 
There are benefits to being a patron. Of course, you can see them over there. Most notably, we publish the uh, list of plays that we are talking about on the podcast much farther in advance on our Patreon page so that those folks have an opportunity, a further opportunity in advance to anticipate the plays, to read them if they want to see them. Uh, But there's other stuff. Check it out when you get over there. But the big thing is when you contribute that small amount financially to the running of the podcast, you make the podcast possible and thus in return turn, we try to offer back this time of conversation around plays to you. Please think about it. Patreon.com slash no script podcast. We'll see you over there. Yes. Thank you so much to all of our patrons over at patreon.com slash no script podcast. Y'all are great. We really appreciate you. And we look forward to interacting with you more over in that space. Now you gotta do like a spooky ghost voice in honor of this. And now... Back to the script. <laughs> yes, we gotta get our our vocal theremins to start doing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, so um, we're gonna jump into the conversation around uh, the thin place. Uh, we've talked about Lucas Snaith before on the show, and we tend to not uh, redo kind of talking through playwrights um, at the what if we've done them before, and we've done Snaith mul- multiple times. So go ahead and check out our conversation about the Christians. Either one of them, as Jacob said, we did a, a kind of another uh, shorter conversation about the Christians last season. I believe we've done a house part two as well on the on the show so um we've uh had had many conversations about nath um great playwright and excited to kind of jump into some of the uh, some of the hallmarks of his work i'm going to give you just a second to uh, uh or a bit of context around this play um this play was first brought into existence in 2019 it was done so by partnership with the Playwrights Horizons Theater, and it received its first production at the Playwrights Horizons Theater in Manhattan. And that's the one that you'll see many of the reviews about of this play um, in 2019. Um, that uh, production uh, uh, also, though, was uh, commissioned and premiered at the Humana Festival of New American Plays at the Actors Theater of Louisville, and then workshopped around that whole year. Um, uh, there was uh, uh, some some workshops and productions of it in Colorado. Colorado. That's how you say that Colorado. word. Colorado. Um, <laughs> Colorado. Hey, just to, just to point out that we love the Humana Festival. It doesn't exist anymore, as we learned from Michael Legg in our conversation last season about the Christians, but Humana Festival was an incredible place, an incredible development tool for new plays. This is another Humana Festival play on our podcast. Yeah. We've had a long history of doing Humana Festival plays. It's true. It's true. Love the festival and and love the connection to Lucas Nath as we as you as you heard about in that that shorter episode last season. His connection with the Christians and the Humana Festival. So so yeah, great great uh, festival and and uh, this this play then kind of had that 2019 season. Um, it kind of uh, went through to the end of November of 2019. Um, uh, and, uh, or towards, towards the end of the year there. And then, you know, 2020 hit <laughs> and 2020 brought everything that 2020 did. Theaters shut down, etc. for, for a long time. It was a while to kind of get things back on their feet again. But just recently, as recently as I think October of 2022, there was uh, September into October of 2022, there was another production in Gloucester, I believe Massachusetts, um, that Nath was a part of as, uh, as well again, another staging the production, um, yeah, at the at the the Gloucester Stage Company it did a production in Massachusetts, and uh, that production uh, very recently closed. So this play is kind of uh, returning again, um, and uh, having some more stagings, um, some more some more interaction with it after the kind of COVID wave that hit. Um, so it's still kind of uh, kind of. Uh, 
very much alive, very much um, being produced and uh, excited to see what more stagings we see of this play as it kind of continues to work its way throughout different houses and uh, and uh, and uh, kind of find its feet after that big break that we had with COVID. Uh, yeah, and, and part of the reason why this play is going to have the life that I suspect it's going to have is because it is eminently producible. I mean, it, yeah. it's, it's so producible, as you'll learn as, as I try to dive in. Um, this play is a four-part play. Uh, it is got, I don't know if you call them chapters or parts. It, it, the script that I have labels them as parts with titles. Uh, but it's not an especially long play. So even though there's four parts, each part is relatively short. The play takes place in really in a stage is one way to put it. it. It takes place in a kind of empty space. Lucas Nath describes that really there are two chairs in this space. Uh, we, we know that in the original production and uh, Playwrights Horizons, so maybe not the original premiere, but in that early Playwrights Horizons production, there was also like a, a sort of false back to the stage room because the stage itself the back, you know, the sta- the back of the stage, the wings, all the things you can see on a stage are sort of part of the environment. So for that production, they actually built a false back to the stage so they could do some sort of creative things with the way it looks. But it's basically a bare stage and two chairs. Um, and that is, that is the set for the entirety of this four-part play. The play is a kind of storytelling experience for the large majority of it. Um, a lot is told through narration and through narration interspersed with dialogue. There's one extended scene of like what you'd consider more traditional, you know, kind of dialogic conversation, uh, you know, at a party scene in the middle of the play. But outside of that, the play is really driven by narration. Uh, And the narration comes from Hilda. Hilda is our central character. Hilda is in her late 30s. Uh, and something something is sort of amiss about Hilda. She has a kind of strange personality, as you learn across the course of the play. She enters the play at the top with a cup of tea. The instructions are that the house lights stay up. That appears in a lot of the reviews, that the house lights stay up for a large majority of the play. Of course, it gets very dark, and then it's lit by a red light at the end, which are all part of the spookiness. But this play sort of happens in a house lights up, empty stage with two chairs. And Hilda comes out with a cup of tea to tell us a story. And she immediately begins by uh, talking about her grandmother. She says that an audience member looks like her grandmother, reminds her of her. And her grandmother played this, I don't know if you'd call it a game or an experience with her, where she would try to send a message from her brain to young Hilda's brain. And the message was a single word, a kind of a random word. I think she says kumquat or spiral, you know, just something you couldn't guess. The grandmother would try to get her to guess this word, uh, and they practice this. And Hilda says, although the question of her reliability as a narrator is certainly a question of the play, but she says, I got really good at it. I, I could never tell if I was just really good at guessing, if I knew my grandmother really well, or if I was actually hearing her speak into my brain from her brain. We learned that the reason the grandmother was doing this was so that when grandma died, she could 
as she says, communicate with Hilda from beyond the grave, could speak messages into her brain. Later, uh, Hilda tells the story of her mother finding out about this, throwing the grandma out, not letting her see her anymore. The grandma eventually does pass away, and Hilda, through her life, spends has sort of many, she doesn't call them seances, she just puts a candle up and sits in the dark and tries to sort of see if she can hear her grandmother. She does this throughout her life. Hilda then introduces us to uh, Linda, who's kind of the other central character of the play. Linda is a professional psychic, as she's described. And Hilda goes to see Linda in one of her sessions, uh, and and we go through kind of the process of this seance that Linda holds with Hilda narrating the action, and then Linda, as an actor, making an appearance on stage, providing the dialogue that she provides in the story. And Hilda basically provides everything else. And of course, there's a seance, people speak from beyond the grave through Linda to these people who are there to hear from their lost relatives. That goes on and on. The end of that particular seance, though, Hilda doesn't hear from her relatives. She's the only one in the room, she says, um, and that's very unusual. And what ends up happening is that Linda and Hilda strike up a friendship. Hilda is a British woman in her 60s, uh, and again, a professional psychic, and she and Hilda strike up this friendship. They become very close, and eventually, Hilda keeps trying to prompt her to hold a seance for her grandmother, but uh, Linda keeps refusing, and eventually, Linda reveals, look, this whole thing, the quote is something to the effect of, operates kind of between the real and the unreal. It's kind of a trick. And she describes uh, the methods by which I think many of us are familiar with how these seances, mentalism, uh, psychics, this whole uh, phenomena, how it works, the sort of educated guessing, the sort of leading people to tell you what they want to hear. And Linda really claims and feels like what she's doing is a service to these people. She believes she's helping heal them from the pain of their loss by telling them the things that they want that they desperately need to hear. Hilda doesn't really know how to take the fact that this was fake, in part because she grew up with this almost truth happening in her life with this relationship with her grandma and these sort of mini opportunities to communicate with her grandma that she heard, um, that she had, rather. So then we go into part three. Uh, part three is a dinner party scene. Uh, Linda has sort of drawn Hilda into her circle of friends, which include her, um, uh, Linda's American cousin Jerry and her sort of friend, maybe sometimes lover, it's a little unclear, uh, Sylvia. And they have this whole dinner party. I'm not going to go into the details of it. There's a lot of things discussed, including like the nature of the American dream and American guilt and, and whether people are really helping when they try to solve poverty by throwing money at it. They talk about a lot of stuff. But kind of the core confrontation is uh, later in the party, Sylvia, again, Linda's friend, basically says, I think you're taking advantage of people in what you do. And Linda says, no, I'm healing people in what I do. And Sylvia says, no, you're lying to me. And they go back and forth. They have this kind of structured debate. We know that Lucas Snaith as a playwright loves debates. And that this party becomes to some degree a debate about the ethics of what Linda does as a quote-unquote medium. They, this evolves into kind of a full-on uh, angry fight. Uh, those two characters go off stage and Jerry and Hilda have a small conversation. Eventually, Linda comes back on and... They've been in the process of kind of telling ghost stories. We don't actually hear a full ghost story told by any of the other characters, but we know that's what's happening at the party through this kind of narrative, time-fluid way that the play is told. But at the end of this party scene, Hilda tells her ghost story, a story that's true, and it helps explain some about 
Hilda that we've had questions about through the play. And the story in sum is basically that Hilda went to see her mother. Her mother has had issues her whole life uh, at one holiday and the house was in disrepair and it was very concerning. So Hilda calls like human protective services to go check on her mother. They say, oh yeah, we went. She seems okay. She said there was a family member there. And this kind of strikes Hilda odd because Hilda knows her mother doesn't have any other family and really doesn't have any other friends. So who could this person be? So she calls her mother and she, you know, she lies. She says, you know, these, these people from Human Protective Services called me and said that they went to check up on you. And, and they said there was somebody there with you. Who was there with you? And the mother is sort of evasive and then says, do you want to talk to them on the phone? And what comes on this phone is this strange, otherworldly kind of voice that says, I know you, I know you. And then she's basically, so there's this voice says that uh, they have taken the mother and they're in the other place now. And then, and that is the last time Hilda ever saw her mother. Her mother disappeared from that point forward. And again, Hilda's telling this as if it's a very true story. And uh, that's, of course, a very scary story in and of itself. But then Hilda's phone rings in the middle of this party, and it's a phone call from that house, the house where her mother was and where her mother disappeared from. It freaks everybody out. They don't answer it. They try to call the number back. The number's dead. Then the number calls them again. And this causes, uh, this moves us into part four, where Hilda is driving uh, Linda home from the party. And uh, Linda says, why did you fake that? Did you need attention? What's the deal? That was such a, that was, that was taking it too far, sort of, you know, more than implying, stating that she doesn't believe this story Hilda told. She believes Hilda staged the phone thing. Hilda, though, and we're following her story, really, felt very earnest and honest about what had happened. She's very scared. So she sort of kidnaps Linda. She doesn't take her home. She drives her to the house (laughs) where her mother disappeared, her childhood home. They go into the house. It's very scary. And Linda kind of falls into her medium role sort of and says, look, you clearly need something from this. You should hold one of these sessions like you used to do when you were a kid. Light a candle, sit with your eyes closed and listen. See if you can talk to your mother. And Hilda says in one of the kind of more theatrical, metaphorical, visual moments of the play, okay, I'll do it, but I don't want you to watch. Put this big white sheet over you and go stand in the corner and I'll do it. So then Hilda has this session with her candle and she talks about hearing things in the dark. She talks about feeling a presence and that the presence stood near Linda. And then she uh, that, that all kind of wraps up. And uh, Hilda sort of ends the play by saying, I never saw Linda again. I'm not sure why. Maybe it was because she was so scared by what she experienced that she didn't want anything to do with me anymore. Maybe it was because she felt like I was a charlatan and she didn't want anything to do with me anymore. Maybe she slipped into the other place. And, or maybe I slipped into the other place and we've sort of vanished and never seen each other again. There's a stage magic effect where Linda from other, under the sheet actually disappears and the sheet sort of falls empty to the ground. And then the play ends with this moment of mentalism where Hilda has written a word on a piece of paper and that same audience member that she thought reminded her of her grandma is supposed to like speak a word that Hilda has sent into the audience member's mind uh, like grandma used to do when Hilda was a kid the way we started the play and Hilda reveals yes you got the word right it was the word all along that's the scope of the plot what's curious about the end of that play though is that the production notes say this is not supposed to be a trick this is actually like right. I guess you're supposed to use 
like some of the techniques of mentalism or, or that, or, or rather that it's not a trick. I guess it is a trick in the sense that mentalism is a trick, but that rather the audience member is not a plant. Yeah. The audience member yeah. is not like a member of your production team that has been told in advance what to say. Yeah, and you have to reveal a piece of paper that has the word that they were like <laughs> that they received written on. Like it's it's a I mean, yeah, it's a it's a big old <laughs> big old trick at the end or illusion at the end of the uh, at the end of the script to try to pull off, which is uh, you know, one of those delightful sort of like punt the ball downfield. <laughs> And like, see what the production <laughs> company does to kind of figure out, because it's like it's 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 one of those stunning moments at the end of the play, um, especially after there's those two big sort of like uh, magical or spiritual or quasi magical moments of the sheet uh, kind of floating up and disappearing Linda into who knows where, um, uh, but also then that that uh, that that other sort of um, um, bookmark of of uh kind of coming back again to the grandma from the start of the play um and having another moment of of mentalism there makes it like the super super impactful credibility thing and that's maybe a part of this play that is that is uh always up for question is what is the credibility of these characters and their experience and what they're actually interacting with um, because you go, you go on a ride with them. Linda, Linda's credibility is called into question all the time, sometimes by Linda herself. And then you also have to try to evaluate Hilda's credibility as someone experiencing these things. Yeah. Well, of course it, the, the kind of center relationship of the play is the Hilda Linda friendship. And in one way, the journey of this play is the beginning of this friendship. Hilda is a person that needs a friend that is clearly very lonely uh, she talks about not really ever being in anybody's inner circle is a very poignant line later in the play. Anyway, the the play in some ways is the story of this friendship, how it begins from a place of loneliness to a place of friendship, personal connection, and then how this friendship comes to an end. And in the sense that the play is about friendship, you know, a sort of buddy cop, you know, without the cop <laughs> sort of story. Right. These are two kind of diametrically opposed people in the way that these buddy stories often are. Linda is a big-time talker, big-time personality, uh, kind of domineers a room confidently with ease. In fact, late in the play, she talks about teaching people to do that as, as one way that she makes money. Hilda, on the other hand, is shy, is quiet. One of the features of the party scene is that Hilda's been narrating the whole play up to then, so she's been talking a lot, but to the audience in the way of narration. But then when we get to a scene which is actually played out dialogically, she doesn't really speak at all. I mean, she's very quiet. She stays mostly out of it until some other characters leave the stage, and one of the characters deliberately tries to get her to talk. So she's quiet. She's shy. Linda's big, brash, bold, domineers a room. So they have that personality. But then, of course, their beliefs about the supernatural conflict, right? Linda is a professional psychic who is very skeptical of the supernatural. I mean, as it's demonstrated when they have this experience with the phone call and Linda sort of gets mad at Hilda for making this up. She has no sort of, Hilda talks throughout the play about it, having an open mind. That's not who Linda is. Yeah, yeah, Linda has this sort of um, 
uh, almost like a, um, whatever her kind of public-facing brand image explanation is for her interaction with the spiritual. She says, "I don't, I don't, I don't have any control or really know what's happening in those moments when I receive something to say." Um, but <laughs> I, but but she'll, but she'll also be very willing to say that I'm inferring a lot of stuff, and here's how I use here's how I use what the audience member gave me to to um, uh, to affect affect them or, or give them different information versus um uh hilda's sort of like focus on listening um that's that's the thing that comes up in that scene with jerry when he's like i notice you don't really talk all that much and she says well i really like to listen um and that i think is really reflective of both her way that she interacts in scenes but also the way that she interacts with the spiritual she listens a lot more than than linda does who kind of like um uh um Oh, what's the word for when you're you you speak a lot? It's like patter or something like that. Who has this like um, established rhythm that she does to kind of get an audience member to slowly reveal something about themselves? Yeah, well, I want to say that what you described Linda's sort of sense of the supernatural, and I I do think that there is a difference between what she tells the people in the first seance. Uh, about her relationship with the supernatural. That's where you get yeah. the description of, like, I don't have any control over what's being said. But actually then when she goes in to describe the process, both in what's called part two, the unveiling, the scene in which she describes to Hilda how it's a trick, but then also in the party when it's further explored ethically, you get her saying, actually, she does have a lot of control. It's these educated guesses. It's listening and parroting back what people want to hear. But then I think there's a really telling moment where she also says, sometimes they ask me questions like, what would my dead husband think about me getting remarried? And it's like, I don't know that. How would I know? So I just tell them what I think because yeah. what they're looking for <laughs> is honesty. So I'm just honest about what I think. So I, she actually does demonstrate quite a bit of control of these moments and seems to acknowledge that even while there's this sort of brand image within the context of the seances that, oh, it's just coming to me and swirling communications from beyond existence. Mm hmm. Which is then in like in turn called into question by Hilda really interestingly and especially around the. Uh, use of these like kind of breathing attacks that happen to uh, Linda, which uh, happens so twice in the uh, twice in the play, though she talks about it happening more frequently. Um, but they both kind of occur at these moments when Hilda, at least, um, is perceiving perhaps a connection between Linda and the spiritual world. And whether or not Linda acknowledges that or not, Linda seems to just be experiencing these sort of like breathing attacks that are somewhat like an asthma attack, but not really. She says that doctors have looked at her and that she doesn't have asthma. They know for sure it's not asthma. Um, but, but that allows the space for Hilda to kind of, um, evaluate again, Linda's stance of her just kind of like inferring some stuff and having a lot of control over it versus like, maybe there's, I think there's a line that, uh, Hilda says, and I'll just paraphrase it. Maybe there's more going on than what Linda knows about is going on in those moments, even then more than she's aware of that is affecting her as she tries to fill in these blanks. Yeah, Linda's had this illness, this breathing problem. And then in, in the party scene, you do get a mention of the idea that it's getting worse. And, and we're not, I'm not really sure how that ends up 
affecting the story or our perception of Linda. Um, she ha- then ends up having a, one of those breathing attacks near the end of the play. It, it all kind of, a, a lot of this play is the kind of mis- mystery, the kind of unanswered questions that are kind of dread in the most sort of deep existential sense, these kind of dreadful questions that we don't get answers to. And that that's really a huge part of the experience. A reviewer, Helen Shaw, wrote for The Vulture. Um, she talks about the red light. We can talk about it in a second, but ignore that for now. Much of the play happens in deep red light, which has the effects of creating faint hallucinations in your peripheral vision. She says, I can't even really tell you confidently what happened. And that's the elegant trick of The Thin Place. It's a story about storytelling that defies your ability to tell a story about it. What happened? How would I know? These sort of, now it's back to me, these questions that of trying to articulate like the what really happened of this story are, are totally escapey. They're, they're almost impossible to put your hands around. And weirdly, it's part of what makes it spooky. Yeah, definitely. And it's part of what I think ties in a lot of the play, like all of the different elements of the play is the kind of dwelling in these sort of dreadful, spooky things um, that you don't get all the answers to. Some some critique of the play has been in that party scene where there all the, there's all of a sudden this like dialogical scene and people are talking to each other. And there's a bunch of big issues being thrown in. There's like world hunger thrown in. There's the political scene. There's like posturing for charity versus earnestly giving money thrown in. And it can like it can kind of blindside you a little bit unless you are dwelling in that sort of like these are the things that cause dread. These are the things that we don't have answers to that like have that same sort like when you actually sit down and think about the effect that you have on the world if you are a privileged person or think about the political scene and how much power it actually has over the ability of or how much ability it has to manipulate people if it needed to um that sort of thing sort of dredges up this sort of societal dread that um is loosely or at least similarly feels very similar at least in my mind to the sort of dread you think about when what's what's around the corner in a dark house that has been condemned it's got it's got a very similar sort of feel to it as you sit in that sort of existential space i think that's a really smart connection the kind of unanswerable questions that make up the party scene being part of the story of this play the kind of unanswerable story it's interesting this this horror play i directed you know however long ago has a very similar feature in that it's very hard to grasp the question of like what really happened. Like what happened to this character? What's the truth about the story that this character tells or that the story within the story that this character tells? And and, and uh, those of us that worked on the production tried not to let ourselves go down that rabbit hole of trying to like <laughs> grasp onto what really happened because part of the play was like, I don't know. And that's what makes it or part of what makes it dreadful, which makes it spooky and scary, and you look around with big eyes to the people around you. And it's interesting to see Nath sort of employ that same technique in this play, and indeed make the idea that we don't know part of it. Again, we don't know how trustworthy Hilda is. She has kind of a strange personality and she says some <laughs> things that are, you know, highly questionable. And then we know we can't trust Linda in the sense of 
uh, her profession, but she's open about that. But how much can you trust her claims about the 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 ethical sort of uh, I'm giving back to people uh, uh, relationships that she has with being a medium? These are big questions that come from the characters that also are sort of reflected in the big questions about the plot. Yeah, yeah. And every time that you get close, like an, a little uh, extra piece shoves its way in to make it credible again. Like every time that you think, well, okay, may, okay, now I'm on Hilda's side, or now I'm on Linda's side, or now I'm on neither of these people's sides, and they're all they're all just experiencing something really subjective to them. Every time that happens, the play does a great job of like the phone call calls not once but twice, um, or or uh, uh, Linda brings out a piece of information about one of the audience members that she is kind of uh, having or helping talk to their their uh, loved one beyond the grave that is just like one degree far enough of a guess that you're like, boy, how did she get there <laughs> off of what was being said? So it does a great job of kind of holding that suspense of of uh, um, of, of, of when, when credibility gets stretched, it's all of a sudden there's another little piece of confirming evidence that makes you question all of your all of your wonderings again. Well, right. And, and there's the fact that so much of the first part of the play, this is hard to get a grasp of when you read it, but with the, so much of the first part of the play happens with the house lights up. Like you're, you're part of this somehow. Again, that Helen Shaw, that reviewer talked about part of this play is like about storytelling. It's about the way that what happens in a story is actually happening in your head. And that's one of the mm, things that mm -hmm. I think is so brilliant about The Thin Place is it's kind of deliberate minimalism. I mean, again, the, the play is an empty stage and two chairs. It's lit, it's lit with house lights until it's lit by nothing at all, and it's a dark play. And then it's lit by a single red light bulb now, these are old-timey theatrical effects in some ways, right? Some reviewers talk about that, the sort of leaning on some of the older kind of conventions of theatrical magic, uh, lighting effects with red light, for example, you know, right? And, right, and right. So some of it is that, and some of it is the simplicity, the narrative style, right? This play doesn't have a lot of characters. It has that one party scene in the middle. But other than that, all the other characters in the play, the other people at the seance, the mother, the idea that there might be a mom. I mean, all this comes from just the storytelling. Hilda just telling us a story. Yeah, yeah. And, and even... Even those early scenes, so so Hilda is speaking directly to the audience, but Linda has big, long stories, too. I think that they're directed towards Hilda. In fact, there's a production note that says Hilda is the only uh, uh, character to speak directly to the audience. Um, but there's big stories from Linda as well, the stories about her own kind of uh, traumatic interactions with her family um, and their sort of violence towards each other um, and, and uh, kind of big, long sections of monologues where she's kind of telling, uh, unpacking her story to Hilda. So, uh, and and even in the even in the dialogical scene where everyone's there, one of the big things that uh, Hilda says about the the people that Linda brings her in contact with is that they have great stories, that they have really interesting, uh, uh, compelling stories to tell. In fact, Jerry has like a, a little mini ghost story that he tells <laughs> in that scene where he's left alone in in the room with with Hilda. So, it, yeah, story and narrative 
narrative and how we choose to tell our stories is all woven into this this whole experience. And then there's the party scene. And it's so yeah. disruptive and different than all the rest of that. I mean, it you go from this narrative, sort of quiet, reflective uh, 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 style that the, the first two scenes are in. And then you immediately, the, the party scene, part three, begins with big noise. Other people are suddenly there. I mean, half the play is over with these two characters basically storytelling back and forth and then kind of immediately flip into more people, laughter, talking, quick dialogue, engaging conversations between highly intelligent people that have doubts. And it's it's a very different experience than what we've experienced so far. Absolutely. From both the, the structural way that you've been talking, that you've talked about as you've introduced it, this this like crashing in of other people into the scene, conversations happening, new characters, new stories, new way that we're interacting with it, but also the silence of Hilda, who we've grown so accustomed to hearing from for so long. Like I found myself as I was reading this being like a couple pages into that scene and being like, Am I, am I reading this right? Is Hilda, in fact, not talking at all? Um, and she's not. She's she pretty much just like is listening, which is which is just a, 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 I was in. I forget. I forget if I've said it on the show before, but I was in a play where I was the listener for much of the play before. And that's such an interesting role to be in as both an actor, but then also to awaken to as an audience member, because you get to watch a character just listen actively for a long uh, space of time, which is such a uh, uh, an interesting assignment to give to an actor and such a compelling moment for our kind of not, I mean, she's sort of the protagonist, but certainly the person that we've been watching and going on the journey with this whole time. And I, I do believe too, that one of the things that happens in that scene, like you've described some of the kind of philosophical, ethical conversations they have about world politics, about the American dream, about poverty, uh, all this stuff uh, as being kind of things that fill you with dread because of their unknowability, the sort of intangibility of all these things that are hard to grasp onto. I, and, and totally, that's an amazing observation. But also, there are also things that you, you sort of have to tell a story about. Like, these are things that have a story told about them. There's a story that you tell about giving your money to support people who are in desperate poverty. There's a story that Linda tells about her work as a medium. Now, it's not the same story she told in the seance about actually contacting the supernatural. We've moved past that story to the story inside of the story, which is I'm right. actually helping people. I'm helping people by pretending to tell them what they really need to hear. And all of that party scene, part of what goes on is that these stories get called into question. And, and, and it's, it's part of the ongoing process of this play of you as the audience questioning these stories that you're experiencing. Um, not in the sense of saying like, well, I don't really believe that happened. Lucas Nath, of course, knows none of this play happened. We know that. That's part of why the house lights are up, right? We know we're sitting and watching these stories. But questioning sort of the nature of the story, our ability to know the story, our ability to trust the person telling us the story. 
Mm, yeah, yeah, which which is certainly corroborated across the different people because you get like little snippets more about Linda because these are her friends. You get um her her like we know that she has asked Sylvia for money um to some extent. It's just like this brief moment where Sylvia kind of brings up and you said something about giving me money and that kind of floats away and you see like Linda Linda <laughs> move on quickly from that. You get her connection with Jerry and his connection with politics and how he's helped her get a visa but now she's helping him with a politician and trying to help a politician figure out how to. Um, she's, she, she spins it as like, uh, hold the attention of a room better. Just, you know, everything he's, he's already good. He just needs some help figuring out how to hold the attention of a room better. But also you, you get the, the, uh, perspective of Sylvia, um, who is saying you're, you're actually helping, like <laughs> you're helping manipulate people is what you're doing, which is what you do across all of your work. Um, so you have all these little, these little, like, chinks in the armor, especially of Linda in that scene, because we're in a scene with Linda's friends, um, uh, that, that starts to kind of uh, chip away at the, at the way that she has presented herself. So then what, I mean, what is Hilda's role in that scene? Because again, one of the other differences, you've articulated this already, besides the fact that there's more people and it's all dialogic and, and action-based rather than narrative. Uh, one of the other differences is that Hilda doesn't speak. She's been our narrator through the play and now she just sits and listens until there's kind of a deliberate moment where she's brought in um, by a specific character for kind of a specific purpose. I think that there's there's another kind of really subtle and and under the radar sort of really nice thing that happens in this play, which is um, or a really exciting thing to watch happen from a from a, a kind of plot and narrative perspective is you see the journey of the authority of Hilda and Linda reverse itself over the course of the play. Um, you, you enter the play with Hilda, who kind of uh, co goes to Linda because Linda can communicate beyond the veil in some way. Um, and that, that friendship is kind of born out of that. A lot of the early part of the play is Hilda trying to get to the point where she can get Linda to actually have a seance so she can talk with her grandmother. Um, but but uh, as, as you continue, you start to see a little bit behind the curtain and Linda's authority is sort of chipped away. At, or, yeah, Linda's authority is sort of chipped away at. And, and slowly you get more and more of Hilda's experience of the supernatural and start to wonder, well, maybe she's actually interacting on a higher level with the supernatural than Linda is. And then you get this scene where where you have Linda just kind of putting out fires all over the place, especially with Cynthia and, and uh, eventually breaking down and, and critiquing her quite, quite profoundly enough to the point that uh, Cynthia leaves the room and she has to go try to fix that problem. You also get um, her the more and more the story of Jerry and she, you just see Linda having to put out more and more fires as her kind of web that she has around her is actively being spun. I don't think it's really falling apart. She seems to be doing just fine, but you see her having to kind of spin her um, illusion perhaps, or the way that she interacts with the world versus um, Hilda, who just is this kind of resolute quiet presence who is listening and more and more I start to feel at least in the reading of it the authority kind of shift towards Hilda and then you have this phone call and this story that she tells and then we go to the final scene where it's clear that she has some at least at least in the lens that we are looking through she has some sort of connection with something uh, pretty tangible on the uh, on the other side. So so that's a fast. I think that's part of what's going on in that scene, or at least that's what I I was excited by in that scene is the kind of slow shift 
away from Linda as the center of authority and towards Hilda as someone who has some authority, perhaps even more authority than Linda in this conversation. And I wonder if part of that comes from Hilda's, I don't know that she ever articulates this necessarily. I think this is maybe an experience that we have, but the experience is um, Hilda is someone who is comfortable, let's say, with not being able to explain her experience. Uh, yeah. Part of that party scene, right, we've talked about is that it's these three highly intelligent people, uh, wealthy, powerful, and then Linda, who's, I don't know that she's necessarily wealthy, but she uh, has a really powerful personality. Uh, in, in any case, these three highly intelligent individuals um, explaining the stories of their life. Or trying to, right? Like, this is how this part of the world works. And I have the answers. I mean, literally, at one point, uh, they're talking about uh, poverty and giving your money to poverty or something. And, and Jerry is making an argument. He says, just do some reading about it. And Sylvia says, I think it's a fabulous little exchange. She says, like, I could do some reading. You could provide me with some reading that I would have charts and graphs that would prove your point. And then I would probably be able to go find other reading with charts and graphs that totally disagree with your point. So how do I know what's true or what's right? I'm, I'm very much paraphrasing. This is not a quote. And Jerry says something in degree of like, well, I'm telling you what's right, right? These right. are people <laughs> who, who feel like they have a grasp on the truth. And that they feel like they have the ability to explain their experience, human experience, the complicating sort of existentially dreadful parts of human life. And Hilda, perhaps in her quietness, demonstrates that she does not feel the need to contribute to that explaining. She simply experiences things. And through that, and, and perhaps that's where her authority comes from, we see the the kind of uh, problems with the authority of I can explain everything borne out in this party scene, borne out to the point where Linda, who has this explanation of her life, this is why I do what I do and I'm very confident in it, finds that even that can have holes poked in it. And then you have Hilda, who, who just doesn't She's much more confident and comfortable with the idea that, you know, I, her grandmother's story, right? Doesn't the story at the beginning of the play about her grandma end with her basically saying, you know, I don't know whether I was actually hearing my grandmother speak into my head or if I got really good at guessing or what? I, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm pretty comfortable with it. <laughs> like, yeah. but, and, and yet, and yet I'm still showing up. I'm still like reaching out, still trying to figure out some way to talk to her. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fascinating scene and it's a fascinating scene to be followed, like all the way up to that, that scene, uh, in the, in the, the big conversation between everyone, it feels like, um, uh, a pretty, a somewhat intellectual play with some spiritual stuff in it. And then you get to that that story late in the play and the whole last scene or late in that scene. And then the whole last scene of the play, which is just like a lot scarier, <laughs> just like <laughs> you, you ramp everything way up <laughs> and suddenly you're red lit and you have this sort of like this very visceral thing that happens with a ghost, at least in the reading of it, in my reading of it, the stage directions, the way it describes the action is very, very scary. Um, and, and well, but, but again, and, I think what's important and amazing about it is that it's scary in your head, 
right? Again, yeah. this play is minimalist in the sense that what's happening is not created through action or stage magic. I mean, there's some effects, right? The red light, there's probably some sound, but really what's going on is that in your head, you're imagining the situation because this, this, this stage has two chairs and a red light bulb on it, you know? Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. And a pile of sheets in the corner, basically. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, it's fascinating what your brain can generate. Um, in that, especially in that last scene, cause, cause yeah, your, your, your statement at this, at the top of the show that it's a minimalist horror. There isn't anything that bursts on stage. There isn't really a jump scare. Perhaps the lighting could be, um, construed to the, to the extent that it is a jump scare in some way. Um, there's, there's a great set of stage directions. That's like the, the red light kind of flickers and you, you begin to wonder, is something moving? Is there a shadow coalescing? Are pieces of furniture moving? Um, but it's all question marks. And, and I think it speaks to what you're talking about. Not necessarily that, you know, you use a bunch of technology to move things around in the room, um, but you create the space for your brain to come up with this sort of terrifying <laughs> experience um, with, and, just and the, maybe- with just the light. Maybe that is the sort of connection point between this idea of explanation, of story, of dreadful things that you can't explain, and the actual like plot of the play and what happens, is that Lucas Nath hands us, as the kind of core experience of the play, this thing that we cannot explain, that we do not know, right? He, he says, basically— this is not said out loud, right? But this is what I think he's saying behind the text. Like we have this impulse to try to package and explain everything, to try to understand how things work and why it works and to know what's going to happen next and to know why what happened in the past happened, right? Package, explain, compartmentalize. And in this play, he really calls that into question. And part of how he does does that is this part four, this horror haunted house scene where we can't explain what happened. There's just no way to grasp the experience that we had. And then, of course, it ends with this mentalism trick and this disappearing trick, which are one of the two two moments of, like, true stage magic and that there's supposed to be some sort of effect generated that is beyond just sort of theatrical imagination. And even the line of Hilda saying, I don't know what exactly happened to Linda. Yes, (laughs) right. I never saw her. And neither do we. (laughs) Yeah, neither do we. like did you kill her what's going on Uh (laughs) yeah no it's (laughs) there's also yeah all sorts of questions and the 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 ability of this play to step into those thin spaces of of dread of questions and kind of uh cultivate that space makes for such interesting conversation, such interesting post-show um, uh, uh, talks about the play, about what your experience of the play, what you brought to the experience of the play. We are sadly running to the end of our time here on this podcast for our conversation, but we'd love to continue it out there and extend the conversation to all of you out there in podcast land. If you are on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, uh, you can find us at the username at Podcast. We also have a Gmail, noscriptpodcast at gmail.com. If you find us on any of those sites if you've been in this play seen this play read this play heard about this play just heard something in the conversation today that you want to chat about hit us up on any of those sites we'd love to keep talking about the thin place with you 
Absolutely. As we always ask, consider passing along our podcast to your family, your friends, anybody you know that likes scripts, that likes these kinds of conversations. Send them our way and we can continue to grow the No Script community. They can find us at Podbean where we're hosted, but of course, more commonly, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, YouTube. We're in all those places. Check us out there. You can also like us on Facebook. And if you're related to or passing us along to somebody that's not going to be able to navigate those kinds of apps, uh, if they have a Facebook account, they can like us on Facebook. Every Monday, the new episode will appear on our feed for you to click and play from there. We've tried to make that aspect just as easy as we can. We're rolling along through our season 10 of No Script, the podcast, and we will be back again next week with another one of theater's best scripts. But until then, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script. No Script.